If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy. Well, there's a bit of a nebulous cloud on that one. I was not exactly sure why we have to insist that they couldn't just take a piece of paper. John, for example, tells us that the reason he wrote is because he wants people to to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So you would think that, yeah, he took some sheets of papyrus. Yep, this is what Jesus did. This is what he said. This is how he died. This how he rose again. We saw him. Like you, you would think a person could do that. But they'll stay. They'll say, no, no. They're existing literary genre. And the gospel writers, when they they sat down, they couldn't just take a piece of paper and write what they want to. They had to look at the different genre that were out there and pick one and ape that one. Well, that's dumb because all the genres must have, there must have been a first time for all of them at some point. If every writer just said, oh, we're only going to pick from the existing ones, you wouldn't get new ones ever. (laughs) You would think so, yes. That, That seems pretty obvious. And if if you're going to say it has to be a genre, like we said, why couldn't the genre be gospel? Why couldn't that have been it? Right? Why not? Well, I guess because they weren't around before Jesus. No gospel before Jesus. Yes, but as you said, <laughs> genres come into being with somebody. There has to be somebody to do it the first time. You you would think that they could do that, and that's how they were accepted. That's what they're considered to be for centuries. Why not go with what Luke says in his prologue? He says, oh, I just wrote an orderly account so that you may, you may know the certainty of the things we've believed. Why can't you just do that? As long as it's in order, gives the facts so you know the certainty of what we believe. It seems to me that trying to shoehorn the gospel books into an existing genre is pointless. There's nothing to be gained by doing it, and it's unreasonable. Nevertheless, biblical scholars, and including evangelical scholars, in the latter part of the 20th century, suddenly decided they had to do just exactly that. So what do they pick as the genre for the gospel books then? They picked what is called Greco-Roman bioi, and singular bios, which is a word for life. We get the words like biography, biology from that word. Bioi is the plural, lives. In, in Latin, it would be the vita, or the vitae in plural. But Jesus wasn't a Greek, and he wasn't Roman. No, but it was one of the genres that existed at that time. It was the 
the closest genre they could find to what they wanted to tell. When you want to tell about somebody, you want to tell somebody's life, they want to tell about the life of Jesus, well, that's that's the genre you pick. So, so there are no biographies existing at the time except for in the Greco-Roman style? Well, in the Greco-Roman world. So, yes, that's that's what would have been around at that point. So, there you go. The modern scholar has suddenly insisted that the gospel writers couldn't have made up their own. They had to pick one of the existing genre, and a number of scholars worked on this. But it seems that it was the work of a certain Dr. Richard Burridge, whose publication in 1992 of a book called What Are the Gospels? A Comparison with Greco-Roman Biography, that really tipped evangelicals in favor of this view. Why? What's so attractive about that view? I think they thought that it would make the gospel books seem more reliable. Attempts to say that this was fable, or they're writing fiction, they're writing a novel, as as some have tried to argue in the past, become difficult to maintain if you can say, nope, they're clearly writing bioi, Greco-Roman bioi, which is about real people and telling real accounts of real people. It's definitely not fiction. So I think this is what they thought was attractive about the view. They thought this would actually strengthen the credibility of the gospel accounts, which is why I would term this the bait. Why would you call it bait? Because bait is something attractive that leads one to fall into a trap. And by going the Greco-Roman Bureau route, they fell into a trap. What's the trap? Well, the trap is this. If these gospel books are, in fact, Greco-Roman bioi, if they're written in that genre, then they must use the conventions of Greco-Roman bioi. And our scholars will tell us that, well, you look at, you study the Greco-Roman bioi written by people like Plutarch and Thucydides, and as you study their writings, what do you discover? You discover that they forgot some things, they misremembered other things, they made mistakes, they made up speeches to put into the mouths of their people because they, they couldn't remember the speeches word for word. And they made deliberate fictions sometimes. They would move events out of their proper historical context, invent a new context for it that would make it more interesting. They deliberately fictionalized things and made up things that had no basis in reality for literary effect. Yeah. Well, well that, that doesn't seem to be achieving the goal of making the Gospels more reliable and show that they weren't fiction, then why couldn't couldn't they have just picked a genre of... Was there no such genre as just plain history? Well, they would say no. Not not when it comes to talking about a, an individual. Those are B-Way. Now, there's, there's going to be something interesting when we get into this, because the reality is not all Greco-Roman B-Way are characterized by this. There were writers who were scrupulously careful to only record what was actual fact and not to change things. But we'll, we'll return to that shortly. The point here is, once you have the gospel books as Greco-Roman bioi, and then they, ha- they use the conventions of Greco-Roman bioi. So if Greco-Roman bioi have mistakes in them, have fiction in them, have things taken out of their right historical context, put elsewhere, have contexts invented for them out of whole cloth to make things interesting. If that's how Greco-Roman bioi are, and the gospel books are Greco-Roman bioi, then what are we going to say about the gospel books? That they could have mistakes in them. Exactly. 
And they could have fictions, things made up out of whole cloth in them. If you have features like these in Plutarch and Thucydides and so on, then you can have them in the gospel books as well. And this is why I say this is a trap. Because they buy into the idea that this makes them look more reliable. And now you find apologists all over the place simply passing on the claim without examining the facts that these are Greco-Roman bioi and then falling into the trap where, oh, now we have to admit that the gospel books have mistakes in them. The writers forgot things, misremembered things, made mistakes, and invented things out of whole cloth and moved things out of their proper historical settings into different settings just to keep things interesting. You see, that's the trap. That's how the trap works. Well, then how can you believe any account about any person from Greco-Roman history? Well, it becomes difficult. You certainly cannot accept everything that they say. You have to accept that, that some things may be right, others not. And, and this is why you have to then start start comparing, if you have more than one account, to try to figure out which is real compared to other known histories and so on. Interestingly, I just picked up yesterday in the store the current issue of National Geographic History. And it has an article on the assassination of Julius Caesar on March 15th, 44. In the table of contents, it says, piecing together the sources, historians can recount the intrigue behind the most famous assassination of all time. Because the sources differ. They don't all agree. In the article, it says, the modern understanding of the attack hinges on the accounts of several ancient sources. Each version ends the same way, with Caesar dead and the future of Rome uncertain, but they differ slightly in their perspectives and analyses. Plutarch, for instance, says the ruler fought back when attacked, quote, Caesar, hemmed in from all sides, whichever way he turned, confronting blows of weapons aimed at his face and eyes, driven hither and thither like a wild beast, was entangled in the hands of all, for all had to take part in the sacrifice and taste of the slaughter. Appian's account is similar. After being stabbed several times, quote, with rage and outcry, Caesar turned now upon one and now upon another like a wild animal, unquote. In Suetonius' version, however, Caesar stopped fighting after the first two blows. With his right hand, he pulled his toga up to cover his head. With his left, he loosened its folds so that they dropped down and kept his legs covered as he fell. Caesar died, quote, uttering not a word, but merely a groan at the first stroke. So you see, the, these Greco-Roman accounts do differ. They do have contradictions. They do have discrepancies. And, and yes, that means they're not completely reliable. These are more than just a slight difference in perspective, I would say, though it, mean, it doesn't mean that we doubt the, the overall account that Caesar was assassinated. But this is what these evangelical scholars now want to change the gospel books into, from inerrant accounts of what actually happened written by people who were empowered by God and directed by God to write inerrant material to Greco-Roman biographers who would get things wrong, make mistakes, and invent fictions to make things sound better. Well, even by those standards, I think the, the same scholars today who complain about small discrepancies in the resurrection account if, if they applied that same kind of standard to the assassination of Caesar, they should be saying, oh, he was never assassinated. <laughs> yes, and apologists do bring up that point sometimes, that 
there's a double standard from historians here. There's a double standard because, in fact, the accounts of ancient events, events from the ancient world, wherever you have more than one account, yes, there are discrepancies, often many of them, and more so than you would have supposed ones in the gospel books. I would say that regarding the resurrection accounts, the claim is made, yes, that they are not reconcilable. There are so many discrepancies and errors. We've shown that that's not true. We have an article on our website where where we did go through the four gospel accounts and showed that took only about an hour or so to show that, yes, everything can fit together. It is a double standard, but the, the only thing I would say in response to that, to be fair, is, yes, we might be wrong about some details of Caesar, but it doesn't affect our lives if we get it wrong. Whether we're right or wrong about Jesus is something different. There, we're being asked to commit our eternal destinies to him, so we do want a higher standard of believability there than we do on the accounts of Caesar. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.